Good morning, I'm Leslie Thatcher, 806 on this Wednesday. It's January 31st. Currently, we've got uh, 29 degrees here in Old Town Park City under mostly sunny skies. On the phone with us from the ABC Forecast Center, meteorologist Thomas Giboy. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Leslie. Happy Wednesday to you. We're halfway through the week, and it's the last of January, and it's going to be another day that's going to feel more like March rather than the end of January. We've just been on an incredible streak of temperatures when it comes to the Wasatch back but we do have changes that are coming down the pipeline and they're going to be arriving here fairly soon we just have to get past today first where in Park City we'll check in with mostly sunny to partly cloudy skies a daytime high coming in at 46 degrees so if you enjoy this kind of weather going to encourage you to get outside and enjoy it and we'll see our winds out of the south anywhere between 5 and 10 miles per hour by tonight, we'll start to see clouds increase as we kick in with more of that southerly flow tapping into some moisture coming in from the west. But I think through tonight, we stay on the dry side of things as the overnight low only falls to around freezing in Park City. And then things get interesting as we go from Thursday into Friday as our next storm system moves in from the west and it's going to tap into some of that moisture from the atmospheric river in the Pacific. So we'll see remnants from it. On Thursday, we'll be looking at a 60% chance of wet weather, but with a daytime high that's still going to be well above average at 44, we could see times of rain and snow because we're only going to drop to around freezing on Thursday night. So down in Park City, we'll have a good chance of seeing rain, maybe times of a wintry mix. While you go up to 7,500 feet to 8,000 feet, that's when you're likely going to see mainly exclusively snow. But that chance of wet weather will increase throughout the day on Thursday into Thursday night with late Thursday afternoon and a Thursday night likely bringing us our best chance of wet weather with a 90% chance through Thursday night, as mentioned with that overnight load dropping close to freezing. Then the cooler air starts to filter in on Friday. So instead of a daytime high in the 40s, we'll be more so in the mid to upper 30s in the Wasatch back with 100% chance basically of seeing straight snow where we could see some minor accumulations down in Park City. But up in the mountains, we could start to really see those totals begin to add up. We do have a winter weather advisory in place for the Wasatch Mountains as we could see in spots maybe over 10 inches of snow. We'll keep our fingers crossed, especially after this melting that we've seen recently. Snow remains likely through Friday night and through our Saturday. It just won't be quite as high of a percentage on Saturday compared to our Friday with roughly a 70% chance of snow showers on Saturday. The daytime high only climbing to around freezing. The chance does look like it is going to be dwindle from late Saturday into Sunday, but from Monday and through the first half of next week, we could see more moisture find its way in, resulting in more potential of snow as daytime highs look to hold steady in the mid to upper 30s into next week. So at the end of the day, Leslie, looks like we have one more warm and quiet day before our weather pattern finally begins to ramp up back to what it's supposed to be as we begin the month of February. Mm, okay. Hey, thanks, Thomas. You're welcome. And taking a look into the backcountry, we've got Trent from the Utah Avalanche Center. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Leslie and everyone listening. Um, you know, since Sunday, there have been uh, three avalanches that really need to kind of catch our attention. The first one was uh, Sunday. There was a pretty close call on Gobbler's Knob. This is Mill Creek. This avalanche was three to five feet deep and 500 feet wide, catching and carrying a skier. Um, luckily, no injuries, and they weren't fully buried. Then on Monday, there was a large natural avalanche in Mineral Fork. This is in Big Cottonwood Canyon, four to six feet deep, 300 feet wide. It ran down into the flats. And then just yesterday, another close call with a skier getting caught and carried in Upper Days Fork, again in Big Cottonwood Canyon. Uh, this avalanche was three to five feet deep and over 150 feet wide. It ran down into the flats. Luckily, they weren't injured either. But my fear is that, is our luck gonna run out back there? 
um, with, you know, riders taking uh, these rides and these avalanches. These are serious avalanches and they're failing on that persistent weak layer of faceted snow that unfortunately I know we sound like a broken record, um, but, you know, this weak layer formed in December with a 25-day dry spell and it was buried on January 4th and it's only been you know 25 days since it was buried and unfortunately we call it a persistent weak layer because it can last a long time so what we need for this layer to go is for some more snow to happen we need to bury it more deep into the snowpack and let it heal up but for now those avalanches I just mentioned show that this problem still exists and it's very dangerous across the train. Even though the avalanche danger is only moderate and you're seeing tracks like everywhere out there. So it's like, well, how can it be so dangerous if there's so many tracks? And well, that's sort of the nature of these persistent weak layer avalanches is that as time goes on, the likelihood of triggering an avalanche will go down but the consequence of these avalanches remain the same. So maybe just a few weeks ago, you'd sneeze and trigger an avalanche, but today there's tracks all over the slope and nobody's triggering an avalanche. Well, it means the problem's still here, it's just that likelihood's really gone down. So unfortunately, we're gonna have to talk about this for a little while longer, and I, you know, I do apologize for that broken record, but did you have something there, Leslie? No, no, I'm just, yeah, I'm just kind of reading your commentary on the, uh, on the website. <laughs> yeah, don't yeah, mess with yeah, facets. Yeah, I sort of went in, <laughs> yeah, don't mess with facets, uh, bingo, and, um, you know, and then our other problem, uh, we just heard the weather report, it's going to be sunny and warm again, and as that sunshine heats up those southerly facing slopes, what happens to the snow is it actually loses its cohesion or the bonds between those individual grains go away, and then the snowpack will uh, actually be unstable. And it'll begin with like roller balls under the cliff bands, and if those get large enough, it'll start to fan out into what we call wet loose avalanches. And then finally, if the day heats up enough, we'll get wet slab avalanches that also fail on this persistent weak layer that I've been talking about. And in fact, um, Timpanogos, Provo, and Cascade went through a massive uh, cycle yesterday, a wet slab cycle. These avalanches, hundreds of feet wide, running thousands of vertical feet down. There's actually a really great video of an avalanche running uh, from somebody who took it with their you know, iPhone in the valley there. So lots of information but today there's a moderate avalanche danger across everywhere so it's all yellow um, on the shady aspects you're going to be dealing with that persistent weak layer uh, problem where you could trigger an avalanche two to five feet thick um, and a hard slab on the sunny aspects once the sun warms up the, s the snow again we're going to start to see the avalanche danger rise to moderate or possibly even considerable on those aspects over there okay trent thank you Stay tuned. In just a minute, I'll be checking in with Attorney Michael Judd. We'll be talking about the Utah Transparency Project, what it is and what it does. Park City Manager Matt Dice will be in to preview this week's City Council meeting, including a proposed 10% increase in water rates. And the owner of the escape room, Shireen Spangenberg, is in to tell us about their doors are closing after this winter season and what's next. Later on, stay tuned for The Mountain Life. Today's guests include Keith Barr, an exercise science researcher who studies the effects of supplemental collagen on joints and connective tissue. Then Romy Mushtak is a board-certified physician in neurology, integrative medicine, and mindfulness for more than 20 years. She discusses her cure for the busy brain. All of that coming up on The Mountain Life. And of course, you can hear The Mountain Life every Wednesday from 9 to 10.
The Utah Media Coalition is launching the Utah Transparency Project that will rate bills on whether they will make government accessible to the taxpayers who pay for it. On the phone with details is one of those helping to launch the project, attorney Michael Judd. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Leslie. Yeah, first start by telling us who or what the Utah Media Coalition is. Sure, the Utah Media Coalition is uh, a, a joint effort by Utah newspapers, websites, radio stations, really uh, members of Utah's media who work together to try to make sure uh, media issues are promoted, uh, whether it's through the legislature or to the public. Okay, so it's membership-based. I mean, do they pay things to help sustain the, the coalition? The coalition is really a, a joint effort to make sure that they're speaking with one voice. And so it's not like a, a you know paid membership to join. It's kind of a, a let's work together to make sure uh, the legislatures and the public know that we're on the same page when it comes to certain issues that are really important to media access. Okay, so the Utah Transparency Project is being launched. What's this? Yeah, the Utah Transparency Project is, is an update. Uh, of an older effort called Grandma Watch. Grandma is Utah's record access law. It's been law for 30 years here in Utah. About 13 years ago, there was an ill-fated effort by the Utah legislature to really change the laws in a drastic way about what the public could know about what the legislature and other Utah governmental entities were doing. That caused such a public furor that even though the law was passed, within a matter of days, they reversed it and wiped the law out. With that concern in mind, right, that on any morning at the legislature, the rules about what the public could know about governmental processes could suddenly be changed. The Utah Media Coalition decided it was important to keep track of what was going on up there at the Hill so that we could let the public know what was changing and what may happen during that legislative session that would change the public's ability to access information about the way the government does the public's work. Yeah, so where does this transparency project exist I mean there sure yes so the Utah the easiest way for the public to get access to the Utah transparency website is through social media that's the easiest way to reach the public so they know what's going on so they have a, a, a handle on X formerly known as Twitter that is UT transparency and it's also available on their website you can simply search Utah transparency project it's hosted on the Salt Lake Tribune's website as well the way the system works is that when there is a bill that would affect public's access to information, then the uh, Utah Media Coalition, through the Transparency Project, would rate that bill as either open door, that means it would promote public access and give the public more information about what the government is doing, or closed door, which means that it would restrict access or limit access that the public might have to the work that the government is doing. And so this is essentially a bill rating um, endeavor in order to let the public know whether or not these bills that are up to be passed would actually help them know more or less about what the government is doing. Yeah, so what are, can you identify some of these bills then that have been rated as open or closed door? Sure, I think that's a good example. So there's a bill being run this year, for example, that would uh, expand certain kinds of access to uh, the, the uh, sex offender website that would allow people to search not only by a name but by a phone number right which means if you uh, found you know a, a child who was texting a phone number that uh, you didn't know who it was you could search that website that for example would give the public more information about what was going on there are also slated or proposed changes to uh, the utah public meetings act 
that would make fewer discussions between lawmakers available to the public. That would be a closed door, right? That would keep the public from being able to learn about the government officials. And so sometimes those bills can be tough to parse. And so the coalition's job, working with uh, lobbyists and attorneys to parse these bills, would help the public understand whether those bills would restrict or expand access by the public. Yeah, um, and I recall uh, several years ago uh, a bill that uh, basically made it more difficult for residents to uh, collect signatures and put a, a public referendum on a, a ballot. Um, and we've seen kind of what's happened here along the Wasatch back, especially in Wasatch County, where they've used that process many times and again failing again where they have increased the number of signatures required and um, basically uh, shortened the time in which to collect them so is that something that the that uh, the transparency project would bring to light yeah i think that's absolutely part of what this media coalition could work together to try to make sure the public knows again unfortunately sometimes these changes that could have drastic effects on the public's ability to legislate or participate in the government process can happen kind of uh, un under, uh, without scrutiny and without public awareness. And once that bill is passed, suddenly you find yourself later in the year trying to gather signatures or trying to get access to governmental records, only to find that the legislature had changed the rules before uh, that effort even started. And so trying to make sure that there aren't surprises and that the public understands what it is that the, their legislature, legislators are doing in order to make sure that this uh, governmental process runs smoothly. Mm. Um, so who's doing the work to make this project happen? It sounds like a lot of legislative monitoring, and we both know how quick bills can be introduced and passed by a supermajority legislature. Yeah, that's right. So there are quite a few reporters from various news entities who all work together to cover the legislature. And whenever one of those reporters identifies a bill that they believe may be a potential source, like the one that you just mentioned, of a need for a transparency alert, they'll communicate with one another. Um, Robert Gerke, who's a reporter at the Salt Lake Tribune, often takes the lead in trying to create the, the alerts and the content, make sure that's issued on the website. But like I said, they also work once it comes time to identify a bill that really seems to be a threat to the public and there needs to be efforts to work with legislators then there are also lobbyists and attorneys who are involved who can help try to do that process, right, to get up there on the Hill uh, and talk to the legislators about the public's concern about a bill like that. All right. So how did this all come about? I mean, was it the, the coalition and the, or the, the media lobbyists on the Hill? Yeah. So I, I mentioned before this drastic change that was attempted in 2011. And at that point, the media decided we'll be a lot stronger if we're working together on these points. We can't let something like that happen again, even the risk of something like that. Um, and so it was that was the genesis of this original endeavor called Grandma Watch. Grandma is Utah's record access law. And so the focus initially was on that. So often it's access to records that allows reporters to do their work. Um, but the new uh, reworking of this project to call it the Utah Transparency Act reflects the fact that it's not just record access through grandma, but it's other uh, bodies of Utah law, the Public Meetings Act, right, or record retention laws, or rules about how the media can cover the legislat legislature. All of those things affect the openness of government. And so it's not just grandma. It's any sort of law that would affect the public's ability to monitor the work that the legislature is doing on their behalf. Yeah, so are these open-door, closed-door ratings making a difference? 
you know, we're just at the very early stages, but we know that Grandma Watch has had effect before. We hope that this makes it even more accessible to the public. But again, this is a reworking of a project that's been underway for more than a decade now. And we do know in the past that this type of effort has often been successful. That when members of the public unite and let their legislators know uh, we are not okay with any sort of change. I mean, this is a uniquely bipartisan issue, right? Wherever someone is on the political spectrum, everyone shares the belief that they would like to be able to know what politicians and governmental entities are doing, supposedly on their behalf. And so when the public joins together and says, this type of change is not okay, we don't want you to hide the work that you're doing um, you know, behind a curtain. We want to be able to see that, whatever it is. Uh, and yeah, when the public comes together to promote that, it's, all, it's often been successful. Yeah, and interesting. Yeah, um, as they like to say, sunshine, the greatest disinfectant. We appreciate the good work you guys are doing. Anything else you'd like to tell us about it? No, that's everything. We just encourage the public to pay attention to these things, right? This, this ability to access information is the starting point for every effort to create good laws to govern ourselves. And if we don't know what's going on, it's very difficult for us to provide the direction that legislators really need in order to do the work that they're doing on our behalf. All right. Again, people can follow along by uh, on formerly Twitter X, UT Transparency. They can also find a list of notes at uh, the Salt Lake Tribune, sltrib.com slash Utah Transparency Project. Michael Judd, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thanks so much, Leslie. Well, one of Summit County's state representatives has introduced a bill that would repeal last year's law intended to allow Dakota Pacific's controversial Kimball Junction development. KPCW's Connor Thomas has more on House Bill 135. HB 135, also known as County Land Use Amendments, would undo the 2023 law Summit County called, quote, unconstitutional legislative cronyism. State lawmakers passed last year's law to allow developer Dakota Pacific Real Estate to build housing on its land in Kimball Junction despite its development agreement with Summit County only allowing office space. The county sued and won an early judgment last year, but county council members say a state lawmaker asked for the parties to pause litigation and renegotiate. That's the backdrop behind HB 135, introduced by State Representative Kara Berkland January 16th. A county staff report says, quote, Berkland introduced the bill for Summit County. It crosses out each line of the 2023 law that would have allowed Dakota Pacific the development rights it's still seeking. Two weeks after being introduced, the bill has made it to the House Rules Committee and not been debated on the House floor. County Manager Shane Scott doubts HB 135 will make it to the governor's desk. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of high hopes that bill will pass, but, I, but it's, uh, it's one we're, we're tracking and looking at. Part of what the Summit County government disliked about last year's law is it would require officials to designate Dakota Pacific's land in Kimball a, quote, housing and transit reinvestment zone. The so-called HTRZs allow developers to collect taxes their development generates for a fixed amount of time. After that, governments collect taxes as normal. Temporarily giving up tax revenue to the private sector is a way to subsidize unprofitable but important projects like affordable housing or public infrastructure. But when Summit County sued to stop the HTRZ legislation from greenlighting the Dakota Pacific development and won the early ruling in June, that ruling said the law's language doesn't apply to the county at all. And Scott says the county still wants access to the HTRZ tool. 
just with more permissive language. That way, Summit County has more control over what happens within the zone. And in fact, we've been asked to supply some possible changes to legislation for the HTRZ, and we've done that with, uh, with some of our legislators. The Summit County Council's holding special meetings with Dakota Pacific to find a solution for developing the company's 50 acres in Western Kimball. They've discussed collaborating to reduce traffic, but haven't yet discussed collaborating on a financial tool like the HTRZ. There will be bi-weekly meetings before a public hearing February 15th. The council is scheduled to vote on whether to amend its development agreement with Dakota February 20th. The Utah Legislature's general session ends March 1st. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. Good morning, I'm Leslie Thatcher. It's the KPCW Local News Hour. The Park City Council meeting in work session Thursday, starting at 345 in the studio with a meeting preview. Park City Manager Matt Dias, good morning. Good morning, Leslie. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, it looks like yet another water rate increase is being proposed for next year. The Water Department says it needs to increase revenue by $2 million a year to maintain existing service levels and capital projects. So I guess first, why is the water de uh, department $2 million in the hole? Well, I think, um, unfortunately, can you hear me okay? Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure my microphone. Okay. Oh, you might need different headphones. Okay, there we go. <laughs> um, I think, unfortunately, it's a confluence of factors. Um, you know, it, it's, it's no mistake what's occurred through inflation and construction, supplies, equipment, and the difficulty um, obtaining the labor necessary to support the system. But we also have the Main Street project um, that's coming online that was relatively unexpected. And so, you know, I, I think, to be fair, no one wants another year of a high water rate increase. Um, we have traditionally tried to increase rates moderately each year to um, avoid these occurrences. And so, uh, to be fair, <clears throat> this is awfully early that we're coming in with this discussion. Um, you know, some of your longtime listeners are, are probably saying, why are we already talking about this? You know, we're not even close to the budget period, but we're coming in really early. We understand that no one wants this water increase for next year. We obviously have an obligation to um, responsibly administer the system and protect public health and safety and the drinking water. And so we're coming in probably 60 to 90 days earlier than we normally would when talking about the rate structure. And one of the reasons we're doing that is we're trying to be very transparent and allow the mayor and council adequate time to contemplate any alternatives or any other adjustments or additional ways to generate revenue that they might want us to explore. We understand no one wants this, so we're trying to allow a lot of time to evaluate it effectively. Yeah, the staff report shows more than $5 million in personnel costs for the water department alone. So how big of a department is it? Uh, it's a very, uh, <laughs> it's a very significant department. And I'd, I'd argue um, it's probably one of the most complex systems in the entire Mountain West, as most folks know. Uh, not only do we, um, are we susceptible to kind of a mountain climate and an extreme amount of seasonality, and we have a great deal of infrastructure in old um, <coughs> mining areas and otherwise, we have a considerable amount of environmental regulations due to our sources. And so we have several sources in town that um, tap directly into old mining tunnels. We have wells and we also have importation sources. So it's a very complex system, um, less than 100 professionals, but a myriad of professionals. We have laborers, we have water scientists, we have um, statistical experts, uh, people that are experts in chemicals and filtering. And so it really runs the gamut, a very, very strong team. We're very fortunate to have them. Um, so we've got more capital projects to 
accomplished, then there is money available. Why not just bond for this? Well, we could, and in fact, I, I, I thank you for mentioning that. Um, mo what most folks probably don't know is in the midst of COVID, interest rates were at all-time lows. And what the municipality did at that time is we took advantage of that um, of the favorable interest rates at the time. And so we actually refinanced two old bonds and we had planned kind of to borrow in thirds to build the Three Kings water treatment plant over by the Spiro mine. We truncated those thirds into just two bond issuances and then refinanced two, um, two older bonds. And I mean, in totality, we saved the municipality, in this case, probably the ratepayers. Um, upwards of $50 million over the life of a 20-year bond by sort of consolidating things and taking advantage of interest rates. Uh, my recollection is we actually were able to borrow a little bit below 2%, believe it or not. If we were to come in and try to uh, borrow that same amount of money today, um, we'd be borrowing probably around 4%. So just an incredible time. We have leveraged that before. Um, that's something that we might consider, but interest rates right now aren't very favorable. Yeah. Um, so the water fund is what's called an enterprise fund. Basically, it has to pay for itself. Is there a way that the does the water, I guess, does the water fund have to be an enterprise fund? Or could you just like pull money from, from the general fund? Um, I don't know if it has to be uh, statutorily by Utah law. That's, that's a fair question. I'd have to double check on that. But it is. And that means... Um, it needs to be self-contained unless there's um, an occasional subsidy or otherwise that then needs to be paid back on a temporary basis. And that's the reason that we're having this conversation. In order to achieve the capital project programming and maintain the system, this rate uh, adjustment is necessary. I will say for the betterment of the public, um, we are not alone. There are numerous other water, sewer, stormwater districts, in fact, it's in our report, that are experiencing um, double-digit increases for several years. Um, and there's a, a, a fair amount of information that we've asked our water team to gather to share that with the mayor and council of the community so they can have some additional context for what's occurring in the Wasatch front, excuse me, and on the Wasatch back. All right. Well, and I guess the reason I ask about that enterprise fund is that I know that the golf course uh, is also an enterprise fund, meaning that it needs to pay for its own cost. And yet, at the what I what I read in the packet is that um, the city is paying for about a million dollars in landscape or watering the the golf course. So shouldn't that million dollars be tossed over and let the golfers pay for that rather than all ratepayers? It, it may. Um, to be fair, we also have provided some analysis about how other cities and towns and their municipal or public golf courses um, either pay for some, none, or all of their water use. Historically, water had been incredibly cheap in Park City. It just, you know, for, for, for years and years and years, we had relatively little regulation and water was pretty cheap and it was abundant. Now, things have changed considerably in 30 years. And so um, that's the reason we're having this policy discussion so early in the year um, to allow council to contemplate what they want to do moving forward. For example, the golf course is one of these accounts that historically um, we had subsidized because we felt like it was a community benefit to have a municipal course, relatively low rates, very, very accessible for locals. And that was one way that we were able to provide that. Um, whether that's fair, whether that's the right public policy decision moving forward, um, that's something that the mayor and council are going to have to contemplate. That's just sort of but one of the many issues as we look ahead. And another one of those is the, the city has been paying to keep the grass, the fields at Park City School District property green. Um, are we going to 
push that on over to the school district. I mean, I guess it eventually everybody pays for it. But again, it would expand, right? So everybody in the school district's paying for it as opposed to just city right and, and, and so that's actually already um, under works we have been working uh, proactively with the school district for a number of years and we were able to renegotiate what was an old legacy agreement what most folks won't recall is when that campus um, probably about 20 years ago maybe even longer than that um, underwent a major overhaul the municipality actually contributed money to build and construct um, what we were felt was like a higher level of ball playing fields for the community and and part of it was an economic development strategy we're bringing in tournaments and teams and part of it was wanting our youth and our children to have world-class facilities or park city class facilities um, and so that you know that agreement sort of ran its course and through that capital investment we were able to obtain a great amount of community benefit but over time it seemed like it made sense for the um, school district to take that over so we have a three-year plan with them where each year they take on more and more of their uh, water responsibility if you may and that's well underway okay um, let's turn to law enforcement costs for special events I had no idea currently police officers pay about 60 bucks a, an hour that's proposed to go up to seven dollars hour or $150 an hour on holidays and we pay a four-hour minimum that's a pretty good gig so uh, are we talking about the officers that the city hires to do mitigation for events or are these we're talking about our own police officers uh, more or less officers from other jurisdictions that we are able to recruit here through this um, monetary incentive to support special events peak periods and other public safety needs in our community um, this is a fairly common practice for destinations that experience kind of extreme seasonality or large special events um, and so for a variety of reasons um, our rates have fallen behind the rates that jurisdictions for example on the Wasatch Front are willing to pay and this is a huge benefit and a necessity for this city um, so the chief of police works with our special events director and a myriad of other emergency officials and makes an assessment on the level of law enforcement that he feels is necessary to protect public safety during these periods of time and so although sometimes we see an officer sitting at an intersection and I've, I've probably discussed it with you here on the radio and said, you know, why isn't he getting out there? Why isn't he stopping that individual? There are multiple reasons that that officer is posted at that location, but one of them is the traffic component. Um, when we have tens of thousands of visitors in town and our officers are called to a public safety emergency, someone has a heart attack, there's a domestic dispute, and otherwise, these officers are here to supplement our overall services. And so this is sort of a vertically integrated approach that our chief of police has come up with. It is very common in other cities and towns. We've fallen behind, so the notion that we're going to be able to with lower rates recruit an officer from Farmington or Kaysville to drive up here we need to be paying the market rate likely if not more any idea how much more this is going to cost if it's approved well the reason we're also discussing this so early this is another sort of uh, precursor to the budget process is that there are considerable impacts to the municipality we are the event organizer for things like miners day and fourth of july uh, many of our civic events and so there will be a cost to the, to the taxpayer by increasing this rate but there's also a, a cost to event organizers and nonprofits. so um, Kimball Arts Fest or Sundance or back, Backyard Bash for KPCW. 
um, often these supplemental law enforcement services are necessary and the nonprofit will pick up a lot of that cost. And so we wanted to forecast this, allow people to plan ahead if council sought um, to increase the rate and agreed with the chief of police. Just make sure everyone was on board because the costs are considerable. In some cases, it could be an extra $2,500 for, for a local event or in the case of the municipality, it could be $100,000 a year. Council set to appoint a new appeal panel. You had five applicants for three positions. That decision will be made on Thursday? Yeah, that's my expectation is that the mayor and council will recommend three individuals at the meeting on Thursday. All right, so they're going into closed session prior to this to decide, or um, will that be discussed on Thursday? Do we know who those applicants will be? So two things. I can't discuss what we um, talk about in closed session, but... Um, um, I, I don't believe that's occurring, and uh, I just think that the mayor and council have uh, an extremely competitive field to choose from. We're very fortunate to have um, a considerable amount of interest, and the, the kind of due diligence and process has already been conducted. We had two different meetings of interviews with panel members. Um, those were public meetings, and so the deliberation will occur when the item is up on the agenda. Okay. The city formed a radon task force to raise awareness about the dangers of radon gas. Um, are all city-owned units tested regularly? They are not currently, and that is part of our um, effort here is testing sort of any physical property um, that the municipality has, both residential, commercial, or otherwise. So we have public facilities, we have a myriad of them, we have affordable housing units, and so anything that is sort of under the municipality's um, arm of management, we intend to begin a rigorous testing program moving forward. All right, I guess why hasn't it been done before? I don't know. I guess, you know, it sounds probably not a great radio soundbite. It's never been required, and it hadn't really been um, on our radar. I think... Um, I believe January or February is kind of radon awareness month. So working with the Summit County Health Department, um, our housing team and our environmental regular, regulatory team saw this as an opportunity to raise awareness for the campaign, but then also um, put some real action behind it and sort of just proactively enact this. We're not aware that other cities and towns do this. We'd like to think this is another example of the municipality sort of leading out with the best practice. And then to be fair, um, if we uncover or identify um, any radon issues or concerns, we plan to remedy those. Well, we have an obligation and we plan to take care of it. And we hope the community will follow along. I think the staff report that our team put together, um, I was surprised to learn, you know, in particular that radon is actually the number one cause of lung cancer um, for non-smokers. And that was just astounding to me to read. And then as you know, I'm originally from the East Coast where radon isn't nearly as prevalent as it here in the Mountain West and particularly in the mountains and in Utah. And so this just seems like a best practice working with the Summit County Health Department. We can take a leadership role here. All right. Under the consent agenda, an amendment to the interlocal agreement between the Park City School District and the city for school resource officers. Um, right now, it's a we pay the city pays some, the school district pays some, and we have just one school resource officer for three schools, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a fine partnership. Obviously, something I inherited uh, when I became city manager, just very impressed that we had worked together over a long period of time, very committed to community policing principles. Like most things, the costs have gone up over time. Um, we really dedicate an officer almost full-time to that campus here in town. And the school resource officer, school resource officer also um, obtains an extra amount of training 
and certificates and development in de-escalation for minors, um, mental health, uh, substance abuse, bullying. There's a myriad of additional trainings that this officer goes through. And so working with the school district, just very favorable, very easy negotiation. They're also appreciative of the contributions um, of our chief of police and the school resource officer himself. So uh, the school district is going to take on more of that cost then because it's right now they're paying about 41000 The costs are much more than that. Yeah, so they will be um, incurring, I believe they're increasing their contribution by another 30, about 30,000. And to be fair, a lot of the extracurricular activities have increased too. So not only is our officer um, there throughout the day to protect kind of the campus and the students and to be a resource, but to be fair, our officer wants to be there on a Friday night football game or during a basketball game or during the graduation ceremony. And so just the time parameters and the effort has increased. And fortunately, working with the school district, they recognize that too. All right. Um, let's see. Like other Deer Valley neighborhoods, the Bald Eagle Homeowners Association looking to amend the land management code. Basically, that would reflect their CCNRs. We've seen this in other Deer Valley locations. Um, I believe Hidden Oaks comes to mind. So homeowner associations can kind of do this, um, what, neighborhood by neighborhood, just to ensure that their CCNRs are codified? This is a this is a tough one. I think most cities and towns would likely handle this at the zoning level. Just the, they would make a decision for the zone itself and whether or not that area would allow uh, short-term rentals. Our our community has a history of even being. Um, more specific or more defined and allowing to codify these in the zone um, by way of a subdivision or particular HOAs. I do think it'll be an interesting question. Uh, the mayor and council have raised this concern before that you know, really these homeowner associations have the tools presumably to be able to protect themselves from these types of activities that they either deem desirable or not desirable if the zone allows for it. Um, so I, I don't know if the mayor and council, you know, moving forward, they're going to have to continue to think about how to approach these. I think you use the word one-offs or one-offs within a zone. Um, but we have a request and the mayor and council are going to have to consider it thoughtfully. All right. So any concerns by that, by, by restricting any in internal accessory dwelling units? Um, again, I, I think these are going to be, these are the policy discussions that the mayor and, and council are going to have to have. Okay, finally, a modification to the Affordable Master Plan Development Ordinance. I guess um, since this is going into effect as soon as it's approved, does it have anything to do with the engine house development that needs to be changed? No, it, it doesn't. I, I think someone else had asked me that as well, saying, um, well, gosh, does that mean the engine house complies with the codes or, or, or not? Would they need variances? And I think, um, just to be really clear, no. Uh, changing the land management code um, is not retroactive. Uh, the, the engine house in particular, um, I don't believe, really requested any variances or code modifications and met the code at the time. And, you know, they're deliberately in the construction process and have pulled their building permits. So these aren't retroactive. However, um, several years ago, um, the, the mayor and council and the planning commission came up with the affordable master plan development code. And that's a progressive code or a performance-based zoning code whereby in exchange for community benefit, in exchange for more affordable housing, a developer can seek cons um, less parking or maybe uh, reduce their setbacks and reduce their costs. So there's a give and a get in this performance-based zoning code. 
And this code was initially adopted several years ago. I think it's been in place for almost three, three and a half years. And so the Planning Commission is being deliberate about continuing to refine it based upon its use. So, for example, there were likely things that they observed during the engine house review that they wanted to change or tweak, and there are a few things in here. And I think um, my estimation of this is they're actually seeking to make it less restrictive to further incentivize um, developers coming in and proposing projects that include more affordable housing than they would otherwise. Yeah, one of the things that looks like it's th that it would be done would remove the re requirements for childcare facilities. So if that was in fact part of the code, why, do, I mean, do we have childcare facilities as part of the engine house? Uh, off the top of my head, I don't believe so, but that level of specificity, I'd have to go back and double check. Okay, anything else you wanted to mention? I did, if I could, mm. real quick. I think um, I, we just wanted to invite the community on February 6th. We will be having a groundbreaking for the new PC TOTS location at the Park City Library. Uh, childcare has been talked a lot about and stabilizing the childcare industry in this town and its level of affordability and accessibility and expanding the number of seats. So this is a space in the library that had previously been used for the co-op and um, for a variety of reasons they have moved on, but we were able to open up this space working with the local nonprofit for year-round uh, more affordable childcare. So on February 6th, um, the mayor and council at 5.30 in the afternoon will be able to cut the ribbon. We're very, very excited about that. And then in addition, this weekend, I, I just I wanted to mention it's the Freestyle International Ski World Cup at Deer Valley, a long-loved and celebrated event, but it does come with impacts. So if you're a local, you know, you, you could try to avoid these peak periods of ingress and egress if you don't need to be to work or, or, or you're not required to be there. You know, the municipality is going to lead the way and ask a lot of our employees to flex on these days and try to take several hundred cars off the road ourselves. But big weekend coming up and then really excited about opening a new PC TOTS facility. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Well, the Escape Room Park City is shutting its doors after this winter season. And in the studio to tell us more, I have the owner, Shireen Spangenberg. Good morning. Good morning. So maybe just tell us what is the Escape Room? So what the Escape Room is is just a fun um, a puzzle, a themed puzzle room. So you get locked in. That's with quotation marks. And then as you go through it, you figure out puzzles to um, unlock yourself about 70 minutes later. Okay. So you are operating out of the Gateway Center right, yeah. there. Yeah. So, and you opened what? Eight, Eight years, years ago. ago? Mm -hmm, yeah. So you're closing. Why? Well, the landlords are not renewing the lease. Okay. How much square footage do you have? Um, a, about 2350, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um, they, I mean, did they offer you higher rent? There was no, there were no offers, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any so. idea what's going in there then? We have no idea. Yeah. All right. So closing day is when? Is um, March 31st. Hmm. Yes, sir. Do you have a new location? We're not going to reopen. Um, where we've become empty nesters, and so we're trying to get rid of all of our babies now. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah. Okay, so that's the end of it. March that's the 31st. end of it, yeah. Unless somebody wants to buy it and reopen it, and then we would help them reopen it. But as of as of uh, March 31st, we're going to be done, yeah. Wow, okay. Done so my retirement, yeah. Yeah. How many escape rooms are there? There's five. All right. The yeah. newest, I'm, my understanding, is called the Dragon Room. You that's, say it's the most challenging? It's going to be the most challenging, yeah, but it is a blast. There's lots of fun to it, lots of really clever puzzles, lots of magic in there. Um, it's a really, really fun room. So what makes it challenging? What makes it, it's the puzzles. The level of the puzzles are just a little more challenging. There's a, like a logic problem in there, and, 
other fun things. And so Dirk and I have spent the last eight months building this room, and um, it's it's cool. It looks cool, feels cool, the puzzles are cool. It's and a I, lot of fun. And I guess I haven't been, so yeah. I, don't, I don't. What's a puzzle, though? I mean, what is it that I have to figure out? So uh, it can be a myriad of things. Um, whatever. I'm more of the puzzle person. Dirk's more of the engineer. So I'll say something like, what if we use a mirror like this? And he'll say, but what if we do it like this? And I'm like, well, if you can do that, you go for it. So like I said, there's a logic problem in there. So you're following numbers and putting up different items and then some magic happens and then you just move on from there. Yeah. All right. It's hard to explain. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so are these rooms dark or they're light? I mean, no, how they're, they're, they're light they're, uh -huh. they're, and they're not scary. They're meant to be fun and engaging and just a blast. And, and from our customers just tell us that it's just the most fun. We have people that tell us this is the best thing they've done on their vacation. <laughs> so that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how long does somebody spend in a room? 70 minutes normally, 60 to 70 minutes. All right. Do you have some records set? We do. Yeah, we do. Yeah. I hate to say what it is because I don't want people to go in thinking they're going to break a record. I want people to go in just to have a really great time, which normally happens. The best thing for us, for Dirk and I, is that we create all these puzzles, we create all the magic, and then we have... Um, when someone screams because they're having so much fun because they got it, that sense of achievement, that's just so rewarding for us. And so um, we just have just had a great time with this. All right. So, I mean, the group has to kind of work together to figure it all out. That's exactly right. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So what if you don't figure out the puzzles? You know, we've got a game master there that's going to help you out. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, it's not like you're locked in. No, um, no. You're never you can always truly walk locked out. in. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> It'd be pretty unethical to lock people in, really, truly. Yeah. All right. So yeah. how does it work? People just kind of book online? That's exactly right. EscapeRoomParkCity.com. Um, our new room is open now, the Dragon Room. And so for everybody that's done the rest of our rooms, um, it's a good time. We have the next two months open. It's a good time to get into the Dragon Room and do our final room. All right. And is there a minimum number of people that have to be part of a, no, a room? Normally two. Yeah. Two to we have up to 10. And we can fit like 36 people in our space. Oh, at the oh, same one time. time. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. And then what people just kind of book a certain time. They normally book a certain time. Yeah, we have we have it all laid out on the website. You go on, you'll see that there's an availability at 530 for one of our five rooms. And then you would just book there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So nobody has at this point interested or just don't know about, I mean, a business to sell. Is that? Yeah, that's pretty much where we are now. We haven't really gone out to the public and said business to sell. Um, so, um, because we've just been trying to get this last room done. So, yeah. all right. Yeah. Again, it, it closes March 31st and after that. Yeah. And then, no and, and then it's pretty much for us, it's done. So this is kind of our, our fire sale. Not that it's actually a sale, but we've got two more months, you know, mm -hmm. and I always thought other places closed and they never really mentioned it. So if you want to come in and do our last room or any of our rooms, this is the time to do it. Okay. Anything else you want to mention? Uh, no, just come on in and have a good time. Okay. Good Thanks luck. Thanks so much, Leslie. Thanks, Appreciate Shereen. it. Shereen Spangenberg again with Escape Room Park City. Good morning. Well, movie buyers have snatched up more Sundance films on the heels of the festival here in Park City. KPCW's Parker Malatesta has more about that. Following its pickup of Thriller, It's What's Inside, streaming giant Netflix has acquired another Sundance feature, the documentary Skywalkers, A Love Story. The film follows a Russian couple as they traverse some of the tallest skyscrapers in the world. No release date has been set yet. The Greatest Night in Pop, the Sundance special screening centered on the 1985 single We Are the World, is already available on Netflix. 
Amazon MGM purchased the comedy My Old Ass, starring Aubrey Plaza for around $15 million. After a future theatrical release, it will stream on Prime Video. The documentary Superman the Christopher Reeve Story is expected to fetch a similar sum per deadline. Producers of the film, which follows the former actor and disability advocate, are in final negotiations with Warner Brothers Discovery, the owner of streaming platform Max. The indie film production company Neon won distribution rights for Steven Soderbergh's Presence, a storytelling experiment shot completely in first person. The action comedy Thelma, starring 94-year-old June Squibb, was purchased by Magnolia Pictures and is expected to get a wide release. IFC Films acquired Ghostlight, which received critical acclaim during the festival. It's also expected to get a theatrical release this year. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News.